unmuted real quick. We're uh, thankful for your prayers. Uh, we didn't have any of that microphone popping this week, and I did absolutely nothing to fix that. I came in this week and turned the system on trying to make it happen, and it never happened again. So I don't know what was going on last week, but I'm thankful that we didn't have any of those issues uh, this morning. I am going to have to apologize to you in advance. You know, last week I kind of uh, poked fun at the way our mini-series have been getting interrupted, and Scott had started Ruth, and then I had to interrupt it when he left uh, on vacation with a mini-series of my own. Then he came back, finished that, started Obadiah, left again, and I had to interrupt with the mini-series. And I thought I, thought I was going to conclude mine, uh, but that would have meant covering chapter 2 and chapter 3 this week. And as I got into it, I was like, nope, there is no way. But I can't be here next week. I'm out of town. And so what's going to happen is Pastor Scott's going to come back, conclude the Obadiah miniseries, and then the next week I will be with you to conclude chapter 3. And a lot of these songs, maybe we'll sing them again because they're so appropriate for chapter 3. Chapter 3 really emphasizes that second coming and talks about the end of time and uh, waiting on the Lord and that sort of thing. This week, we're going to talk about false prophets, and I, I just can't find many worship songs that talk about false prophets. Uh, so we're sort of using this as a precursor to the end, and Peter's doing that, so we're not doing anything strange by taking that approach. Uh, but in 2 Peter, we're going to cover chapter 2 today. Uh, we covered chapter 1 last week. And so hopefully you uh, remember that a little bit. I'm going to quiz you, you know, starting tomorrow, I'm getting back into the professor role. I'll be launching off the first class at 9 a.m. at ACC, and so I'm ready to give quizzes. I just have quizzes running through my veins right now. So uh, last week we used an acrostic to describe chapter one, and the first was an S, which stood for? Sufficiency of Christ. Someone brought their notes. <laughs> Sufficiency of Christ. The A was for? Action. Yeah, the activity or action of the believer. You're not just passive in this thing. You are fully involved as a believer. Not in your salvation, but in your sanctification. The V, verification of your faith. You are proving your faith by your works. You're not creating your faith by your works. You're not saved by your works, but because of your real faith, there's an outflowing of good works that come from the believer. The E. <laughs> yeah, I heard a lot of different ones, but encouragement of the pastor, uh, that sort of thing. The, Peter said he was there to stir them up and encourage them in the reminder of these things. And then finally, the D in saved stood for? dependency upon the word. And so Peter concludes chapter one by talking about the word of God and how the word of God came through prophets. And it is a sure thing for us to grab hold of and to anchor our soul to. And so the very next chapter here in chapter two, he begins reading and he starts with this word, but. And too often, I think we forget that these were originally just letters without chapter divisions and verse 
separation. There weren't any of these little numbers or these headers above certain sections like we have in our Bible today, and I thank God for those. Uh, They help us in tremendous ways. They've been a blessing for memorization and for referencing things. I'd hate to think that we'd all be still pulling out our scrolls right now trying to find 2 Peter. That would be a nightmare in a church setting like this. But sometimes these divisions cause us to think that there's some formal separation here that there really shouldn't be. And so keep chapter 1 in your mind as we gravitate into chapter 2. And before we do so, I want to invite you to stand and we're going to go to the Lord in prayer and then dive right in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that is sufficient for us in our faith. We thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is proclaimed from these pages. And Lord, as we read them, we know him. And Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself, even though you are a God who is incomprehensible. And Lord, the finite mind cannot grasp who you truly are in all your glory. You have given us an image of yourself, something that is tangible, something that we can understand, and that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I pray that he would be glorified, that he would increase as we decrease. And Lord, we pray all of this for your glory and honor, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So piece by piece, we're going to go through this, and we're going to start uh, with verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people. You see, in the last chapter, he said that the true word of God came from the prophets, holy men of God, moved by the Holy Spirit. But he continues this thought. But false prophets also arose rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So this morning, uh, the entire chapter is primarily focused upon these false prophets. Uh, And you may think, well, that's not truly relevant today. Well, it actually is. He even says as much here. He says, just as there were false prophets, there are false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So we have uh, several points this morning, and the very first one comes from this first verse, which is the presence of false teachers. This chapter teaches the presence of of false prophets and false teachers. This is nothing new to us today, and it wasn't new to uh, Peter's time. False prophets have been walking the earth as long as there has been a devil uh, to influence them. And these false prophets uh, were rampant in Peter's day, just like they are in today's time. You'll notice there, though, that it says they secretly bring in destructive heresies. One of the things that we forget, we read back and we read about false prophets in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and somehow it, we are amazed that people would follow these false leaders. But we have to remember that they don't walk around with a banner or a uniform that declares them to be a false prophet. They are very crafty. They are very sly in what they do. In fact, I'm not always convinced that they even know that they are a false prophet. Sometimes I think they actually believe that what they're speaking is the truth, but they've become so deceived by the world 
and by the demonic forces that they, in thinking they speak the truth, are actually spreading lies. And so it can be a very subtle thing that we have to be privy to. We have to be mindful about these uh, fallacies that are being thrown our way, just as Peter's taking the time to remind people that this is going on. So in today's time, we have to be aware that there are people that they don't have a banner saying that they're a false prophet. They're not speaking things that are so grotesque that we would know. There's not like this thing in our mind going red alert, red alert, red alert, false prophet. We have to actually weigh what they're saying against the word of God to find out whether or not these are indeed false teachers. Uh, I challenge you to do that with me this morning. I challenge you to do that with Pastor Scott every Sunday morning that he stands up here. Every time a spiritual leader speaks to you, you do not need to take them at their word just because of who they are. You need to weigh what they say with the word of God. And if it matches the word of God, not just that they said what they said from the Bible, actually read the Bible, meditate upon it, and weigh what they are saying and the meaning of that against the meaning of God's word. And if it matches up, then we know that we have a, a good, faithful, biblical teacher and not a false prophet. But if what they're saying goes against the word of God in any way, um, then we have a problem. Okay, It's any kind of person. It's not just someone who makes a mistake. I've spoken things from the pulpit before that were wrong. Okay, I'm human. Uh, I've changed my mind on some things. You know, I have different eschatological views now than what I did when I surrendered to the ministry at 18 years old. Okay, and so people do change and people get things wrong sometimes. But the difference between that and a false teacher is someone who continuously espouses doctrine that conflict with the word of God and they speak authoritatively about it. They demand that this is the correct way, even when it may not be. I'm going to talk about some pretty weird things in this chapter today. In fact, if you're a visitor, you might leave here thinking, whoa, that, that was a freaky church service. Uh, but I'm, it's just the, it's the word of God, and sometimes we have to wrestle with some strange material. And Second Peter has some of that. But I'm not going to speak on that as if I'm authoritatively correct on that and any other view is wrong. And this is where a false prophet would do so. They would speak authoritatively in stating that this is exactly the precise way that you need to follow. They lack the humility that should come with proclaiming God's word, knowing that we do not have God's you know, exact knowledge, but we are just trying to communicate what God has revealed to us. So I want you to see the, the difference there. Okay, next time you're sitting in a service and someone says something wrong, I don't want you to immediately go, false prophet, in the middle of it. They might get one thing wrong, but the rest of it be biblically sound. And so hopefully there's humility there uh, behind that teacher, knowing that that's pro problematic. Uh, but let me just give you what I believe, in my humility, what I believe are some modern-day false prophets. Uh, yeah, I'm going to sling some names and it's going to get dirty in here, okay? But there are people today who profess that if you trust in God and you give enough money to the church, that God is going to bless you with health and wealth and prosperity. And that is not biblical, 
Can I get an amen? Can, do we know that enough by now that people like Job have proven that, you know, this idea, this retribution principle that whatever you give to God, he gives back to you fourfold is not always the case. Maybe sometimes it's the case, and it's always the case spiritually that God will bless you and be with you, but it's not always going to be the case that if you put $100 in the offering plate, you're going to get 1000 back in return. God does not operate that way, or else everybody would be a believer putting money in the offering plate. That would eliminate the faith part of this. Hold on. But there are people out there like Ken Copeland, Benny Hinn, Paula White, and many others. We could list the names and names you know, that go on in ministries that endorse this type of theology. And when I hear that over and over again, they are exploiting Christian people and the weakest among them who are trying to get themselves out of a tough predicament. And they are playing the role of a false prophet. And God has some pretty um, condemning words in this chapter for people that do that intentionally or unintentionally. We have to be careful that sometimes we might fall into something like that unintentionally and we start communicating false doctrine and hurting a lot of people. And that's why it's so important that we stay in the word of God so that we do not become unintentional false prophets. There are whole groups of people who go around and, and Proclaim lies. You see, it says in this first verse that these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. They deny the master. Now, you may say, wait a minute, those names you just listed, they don't deny God. They don't deny him in their theological you know, articulation but they do deny him in the fact that they are ignoring half of the scripture that God has revealed about himself. They are denying him and the fact that they are communicating a completely different God than the one the Bible is communicating. And so they are denying him. And that's the truth with groups such as like Jehovah's Witness and Mormons who will tell you that Jesus is not God. Okay, if you tell me that Jesus is not God, remember in uh, 2 Peter uh, in verse uh, 2 and 3, if you have your Bible open, or in verse 2, it said, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It calls him Lord. In the verse before that, in verse 1, it says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. We were created by him and for him, the Bible tells us. And so if he is the creator and we were made by him and for him and you show up to my doorstep on Saturday morning, two of you in white shirts, and you tell me that Jesus is not God, you are denying who God is. You are denying him. Now you may claim to believe in God and you may be, you claim to use the Bible, but you are a false prophet at that point. It's quiet in here. There are countless pastors even maybe within our own circles, maybe Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, you name the denomination, there may be pastors in our own circles who fail to make the gospel message the supreme word over all other things. They don't allow the gospel and their theology to inform their politics or their social movements, or, or all other things in their life, but rather they 
make the gospel submissive to those ideologies. You know, they're American first or Republican first or Democrat first or whatever that might be. And then they allow the gospel to piggyback onto that. And so they spend the majority of their time in the pulpit talking about these other things rather than communicating what God has revealed through the word of God. And when you do that, you're communicating half-truths. You're watering down the gospel. And when that becomes your God more than the Bible itself, then you have at that point become a false prophet. The word of God must be preeminent. It must be the, the nature of the pulpit, communicating the word of God. And we can go on and on and on, but in the next chapter, what we'll get to in a couple of weeks when I come back, we are going to talk about how there are men who, Peter says, twist Paul's words. They twist the word of God to make it fit what they want to communicate. And so many of us are guilty of that at times. We just know that something's right, that there's no way the Bible could actually say otherwise. And so we twist it to mean something different than what it is. And I challenge you this morning that if the Bible says something plainly, that we ought to take it at face value. That doesn't mean you don't do the historical research. It doesn't mean that you don't look into uh, you know, what the author intended and all these other you know, practical uh, steps for interpretation. But once you find out what they actually meant, I challenge you, brothers and sisters, to take it at its word because it's God speaking. Even if it tells you to mo- do the most ridiculous thing or the most anti, cross-cultural thing against the world, that the whole world is proclaiming to be evil, even if it takes you there, I pray you'll go there because it's the word of God. Even if you stand alone, I pray you'll go there. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Just like Daniel did when they stood against the forces of the world and the whole culture around them told them that what they were doing was wrong and that there was a better way and that if they did not do it, they would die. They still would not bow any. They stood on the word of God. I pray you'll have such boldness. Because as that verse concludes in chapter 2 verse 1, it says they bring upon themselves swift destruction. Just as Jesus is coming soon, as we sang a minute ago, and as Christians we, we say that because we're looking forward to the glory that comes. But for those who are not found in Christ Jesus, there is swift destruction coming. Because when he comes again, he is not coming as this gentle, humble servant of all, but rather a roaring lion coming to bring judgment and to bring every mountain down and to exalt every valley and to make things just and right. So I pray that you're found in Christ this morning and that you are submissive to his word and his word alone. The next two verses, verse 2 and 3, read... And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. So we first saw that there was the presence of false teachers. In verse 2 and 3, we see the practice of false teachers. The practice of false teachers. It says, uh, and Peter will elaborate on this even more towards the end of the chapter. So we're going to briefly just touch it here. But he breaks down 
the sin of these false prophets and false teachers into three primary categories. The first one being sensuality. The second one being rebellion. And the third one being greed. And these really correspond with the same sins that are summarized in 1 John where it says that all things are, all sin stems from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the same sins that we see in the Garden of Eden when Eve looked at the tree and saw that it was good, looked pretty, and that it was going to be good for, to the taste, it's going to taste good, and that it was going to make her wise. She had the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All sins, even when Jesus was tempted, Satan was appealing to each of those, to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those sins continue to manifest themselves in the scriptures. And here they are again. The false prophets are driven by sensuality, which is the lust of the flesh, rebellion, the pride of life, and greed, which is what I see is what I want. It's the lust of the eyes. And these false prophets, they, they operate from these motivators. This is their practice. And they draw other people in by appealing to those things. Just as I said before, the person, uh, Ken Copeland, and those people who say that if you give money to God, he'll give money back to you. It, he's not challenging you from a spiritual vantage point. He's trying to make you think worldly so that you'll make him worldly. He's trying to get you to give your money to him so that he gets rich. And he's promising you that you'll get rich. And he's not speaking of anything spiritual here, but simply appealing to the flesh. So 1 Peter 4.3, when we talk about sensuality, 1 Peter 4.3 uses the same type of wordage. And it, uh, it refers to orgies, drunkenness, passions, that sort of thing. And you may think, whoa, what's going on in that church? Well, you got to remember, these churches were scattered throughout the Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, uh, there was a lot of idol worship. And many of these idols and shrines that were set up required these practices to take place so that you could appease the wrath of the gods. Which, it's actually doing the exact opposite. St. Augustine wrote this long book on it. And uh, he, he, in one of his chapters, he covers it. And so if you want to read that, I've got the confessions. I've got it. Uh, if you ever want to read that about what was going on back then, I've got a couple of copies of it. But he talks about how these people are trying to appease the wrath of the gods. And they're bringing swift destruction on themselves because they're actually going against the creator God. But those who are false prophets and false teachers... They are falling prey to these same things, and they're doing it today. We may not have shrines, um, but we have other sexual sins that run rampant that pastors fall prey to. And not just pastors, I'm saying pastors uh, because false teachers are often categorized as that. But it may be the, the layperson who has influence over a lot of people in their church. Uh, it may be the political leader who claims to be a Christian but is leading people astray. It could be any type of spiritual leader who speaks falsely uh, and that are, they're motivated by these ideologies. Uh, the LGBTQ, and it keeps getting letters added to it, is getting more and more prominent in churches today. And people are beginning to accept it more widely because it's being shoved down your throat with every commercial, every advertisement, every business is promoting it. And it's, it's ungodly. It's unbiblical. I don't make this a platform to stand up and 
speak about every time I'm up in the pulpit, but when we're talking about sexual sins, this is something the church needs to be very careful about because the world tells you this enough that it is acceptable. It's acceptable. It's normal. It's normal. You're hateful. You're a bigot if you don't agree with it. And some people can lose their jobs if they don't agree with it. But the Bible, read Romans 1, it straight out tells you that that was not God's intention. God's best way was for heterosexual marriage, one man and one woman, which we're getting away from even that in heterosexual marriage because now we're starting to see polygamy and they're going to win their legal battles. If we allow gay marriage, there's going to be polygamy. It, it just makes sense. There's going to be uh, polyandry. You know, one woman with multiple husbands instead of polygamy, which is one man with multiple wives. It's going to happen in our culture. And they're going to tell you that it's normal. And they're going to say, stay out of my uh, marital stuff, stay out of my bedroom, stay out of everything. When the Word of God tells us, as Christians, now I'm not saying we need to go and thump every non-believer on the head with the Bible and say, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. They're, they're lost. They're going to do it wrong. But when the Christian people in the church start to take worldliness into the pulpit and into the pew and begin embracing it as normal and as holy and as okay, and they start waving uh, the rainbow flag on their banner as their primary marketing scheme, I've got a problem with that now because the Word of God is against that. That's false teaching and false prophecy at its finest. The way of truth that says in verse 2 and 3 here, the way of truth is blaspheme. This is rebellion. And this isn't talking about rebellion like we see on the news. You know, there are people that are rebelling against the authorities of the land. The Bible has a lot to say about that in other places, but that's not what Peter is addressing here. Peter is talking about they're rebelling against the authority of Scripture and the authority of the Lord. Because the Lord is speaking about things and he's already communicated the truths and these men are twisting it because they don't want to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. I know there are people in here who, who have loved ones that may uh, fall under certain sins, but we can't you know, bend and twist scripture to say, okay, that's okay because uh, that's my son. That's okay because my uncle does this. We can't do that. Okay, and I know I've got family members that do that. You know, divorce is a sin until you know my daughter gets divorced, and now it's okay, and I'm going to justify it. Okay, and there, there's forgiveness at the cross. I, I'm not trying to throw all these sins out to make anybody feel condemned or guilty. Come and ask the Lord for forgiveness on any sin, and it is pardoned. It is gone. It is washed away. But to sit there and profess that what God has condemned is okay and to say that what God is, says is good is not as good, that's twisting the word of God. And now you're falling prey to the world and becoming a false prophet by proclaiming things that are contrary to God's word. We can't do that. And Peter is warning the people about that. Rebellion against Jesus is any time that we make an authoritative statement on something that is contrary to what he said. At that point, you are now a rebel to the cause of Christ. You have gone rogue, and you are straying from the path of the way. And so let your statements line up with his statements. 
And anyone who speaks authoritatively about something should make sure that's true. That's what I try to do when I get up here. I promise you, I do not get up here lightly. I do not get up here without looking and combing the scriptures and reading what other faithful men of God have said about these things. I want to make sure that what I say is on uh, the right track with what the Bible teaches as a whole. Political correctness and relevance are starting to become the enemy of the church and corroding the church from the inside out. We are so, so bent on being politically correct and relevant to the world. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for being relevant. We want to be relevant. But if we twist our doctrine so that we can be relevant, we've lost all relevance because all we are is the world in a different building. And why would anybody who is worldly want to give up their Sunday morning to come and to sit here and hear things that they could hear on any news channel or any radio station or anything else? You're just getting more of the same. This is a sanctuary where truth is preserved by the word of God and where the word of God reigns supreme. And if that's not the case, then the church dies. The church lives and dies on the word of God. And you can see that. Denominations that have moved more liberal and have left the true word of God because they start twisting and changing things, they begin to decrease in size very quickly. The practice of false teachers is sensuality, rebellion, and then finally, greed. It says here in verse 3, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Okay, and so this greed, we've already talked about it a little bit, so I'm going to move on. But they're following the money, or they're following the stuff. There are many pastors and many spiritual leaders and many uh, public servants who do that, even though they may walk under the banner and the name Christian. The next point also comes from these same passages, so we'll move through it pretty quickly. Uh, persuasiveness of the false teachers. So we have the presence of false teachers, the practice of false teachers, and now the persuasiveness of false teachers. Note again in verse 2 and 3, it says, And many will follow their sensuality. Not a few, but many. You know, not one or two fringe people that were, you know, just sitting in the, in the service one day and we didn't really even know their name because they weren't really a part of us. No, many. And it hurts. I've had really close people who I thought were fellow servants of Jesus Christ who were in ministry, who have walked away from it all. They've forsaken it all. I've seen spiritual leaders who are prominent figures and, and musicians who are Christian musicians walk away from it all because they've been exploited. The word exploit here is a, like a business term. It's like a business deal is taking place, a transaction, and these false teachers come in and they're wheeling and dealing with you. They're pulling on your heartstrings. They're trying to get your worldview to shift and change so that you can look at the Bible as if it is a lie rather than the true word of God. And when, once they sealed the deal, you're theirs. You've been exploited. You're now in business, in partnership with the false prophet rather than the true word of God. Be careful. Salesmen are good at what they do. False prophets didn't become rich 
You know, Ken Copeland didn't become rich because he didn't know the right thing to say. He knew the right thing to say. He knew the right place to be, the right people to talk to. And the devil was behind that work. And he's crafty. He's not stupid. He's smarter than all of us in this room right now. He's been around a long time. He's got experience. And he, if you're not careful, can flip the switch on you. And he can make you think things. You know, not by entering into your head and, you know, making some kind of biological stuff happen, but by exposing you day in and day out to the ways of the world and making them look good and making your faith community look evil. And over time, enough people tell you a lie over and over and over and over, you start to believe it. And we see that true from history. Don't be exploited by these false teachers. No one is aware, usually, that they're being duped. You're not aware. And so be diligent and careful as you look into the Word of God and as you hear these proclamations from other people. Uh, the next verses we'll look at is kind of lengthy. Verse 4 through 10. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. This is where it's going to get weird. Uh, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he uh, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So verses 4 through 10, they give us the punishment of false teachers and preservation of truth seekers from past examples. I gave you three Ps all in one point there, so that's extra credit for me. Punishment of false teachers, preservation of truth seekers from past examples. So Peter actually goes back to the Old Testament and he starts giving you illustrations of how God actually punishes the evildoer and preserves the righteous. And he gives you this because he's screaming, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. There are false prophets on the prowl. They're trying to take you down so that when that last day comes, you will end up with the same fate as them. And that fate is not good. But for those who are the Lord's, those who have been saved, those who have been redeemed, God will preserve you. And you will go through these trials. He knows how to get you out of these trials. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the Word. He's given you people like Peter and your pastor. And he's given you the Word of God in different ways so that you can be stirred up and reminded constantly so that you do not fall prey to the wickedness. It says, let me give you, just walk through some of these examples. The first one is the weirdest one. It says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. It's like, what in the world is that talking about? Okay, I, 
I see the time's getting a little late in the service. So I'm not going to be able to go as deep into this as what I was planning to. I'm just going to have to do a little research on your own. And this is one of these things that I'm going to approach with humility. I could be wrong about this. Okay, but it seems that what is being referenced here is also being referenced in Jude. Jude, the book of Jude, that one chapter book references this angelic condemnation where they're like reserved in the pit. So something happened long ago with some angels, not all of them. There are still demons on the prowl. We see Jesus casting out demons left and right. But there is a group of demons that for some reason were put in the pit. Revelation refers to it as the pit, or you might call it the abyss. Uh, Peter here uses the word, in, in my translation, he says, cast them into hell. But you might notice there's a little uh, note next to that. It's not the normal word for hell, Hades or Gehenna, but rather uh, it is Tarsus, I believe. Yeah, or Tartarus, sorry, Tartarus, like Tartarus sauce that you put your fish in. Tartarus, which in Greek mythology was a holding place. Uh, it was a, a pit of torment. And so he's using this probably because he's speaking to a Greek audience and he's saying God put angels long ago into this holding place of torment and they're reserved there in torment until the judgment where they're going to be further tormented forever and it will never end. And it's like, when did that happen? Well, it's hard to really put a finger on it, but the best that we can tell is Second Peter and the book of Jude are actually using another source as they're quoting, and it's, yeah, the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is not a part of your Bible. It is a, an apocryphal work, and it's not something that the Jewish people held as scripture, but they did hold it as an important writing, and so they didn't believe that it was direct from God by any means. Uh, in fact, they didn't believe it was written by Enoch. It surfaced a long time after Enoch, but maybe verbal tradition passed down. And so they're referencing this book, not to say that everything in the book is true, but they are embracing what it's teaching about this particular topic. And what the book of Enoch proclaims is that a long time ago, back in Genesis chapter 6, uh, in fact, I'll read you that real quick. It states this. I don't have this on the screen, and I'm trying to go fast here. But Genesis chapter 6 tells us this. It says in verse 1, When uh, man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So you read in the Bible about giants in the Old Testament, and you wonder where do the giants come from. And so one of the things that the book of Enoch tells you is that the Nephilim, these giants in the land, were actually a half-human, half-demon breed. And so the sons of God that Genesis 6 references, the sons of God, when you read in the book of Job, sons of God are angels. And so we come over here to Genesis chapter 6, sons of God are usually angels. And we know that demons are fallen angels. So the book of Enoch says that these fallen angels came and whether they inhabited a human body so that they could procreate with these women 
or whether it was some pure demonic form. I, I don't know how demons do that. I can't give you all the answers to this, but there is overwhelming evidence that suggests that both Peter and Jude, and along with the book of Enoch, are interpreting Genesis in this way. And we know that Peter and Jude are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if that is a correct interpretation, then we have some sort of half-breed. As I said, if you're a visitor today, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, this is not normal. This is an anomaly passage, and it's very strange. But regardless of what happened back then, Something happened, and these angels did something especially evil, and God put them in chains. He judged them and punished them. And so what Second Peter is saying is, if God punished their evil doing, he will punish the false prophet today. Then he goes on to talk about Noah. And Noah's time, the whole world was evil, and God punished in that day. So if he punished their evil, he will punish the evil of today. But guess what? He preserved Noah and his family. And Lot was preserved even though Sodom and Gomorrah was condemned and God punished them. So we get this. God punishes the evildoer. God preserves the righteous. And we have a past example of this throughout the scriptures. And more examples could have been given. But that is God's nature. To punish evildoing and to preserve the righteous who are a part of his flock. I wish we could spend more time on that, um, but we need to move on and conclude for today. The next, we got two more points. Uh, the next one is in verses 10 through 17. It reads, uh, we're going to start where we left off. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness." The perversion of false teachers, this is just an elaboration of what we already talked about. An elaboration of their sensuality, elaboration of their rebellion, an elaboration of their greed. We see in the first part of that, in verse 10, they're bold and willful. And they don't tremble at even blaspheming against the holy ones or the glorious ones, your translation may say. What this is saying is they put themselves in the position of God because it states right after that that even the good angels won't bring condemnation. They don't bring a judgment plea against the evil angels. They're not up there telling God, God, you need to do something about that demon over there. Look what he just did. They leave that up to God. They let God be the judge there. And so these false prophets, they deny God. They twist the truth, and so they don't even mind having this authoritative role of putting themselves in the place of God and to make judgment calls on things and to declare things right and to declare things wrong that the Scripture has not touched upon. That's part of being a false prophet. They write new Scripture 
when they need to so that the people will follow their teaching. And they have made themselves in the place of God, something that real angels, holy angels, faithful angels would never do. They are enslaved, it states in this passage. Uh, their, their godless view is on autopilot. And it said, he calls them out, they're like an animal. It says they're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They're ignorant of them because they do not trust the Bible. They do not believe the Bible. They do not hold themselves to that standard. And therefore, they don't know the Lord. They don't know the power of the gospel. Their ignorance has caused them to live in this just complete autopilot sense of doing what is best for themselves rather than the rest of creation. And especially the church. These people are found in the church as Peter is addressing them. It says that they attack and prey on unsteady souls. It's like the lion that you see on National Geographic who's chasing the weak, limping you know, animal. And that's what he does. He looks for weak faith, unsteady souls, and he preys upon them through the false prophet and the false teacher. Um, it says that uh, they're forsaking the right way by following Balaam. If you remember the story of Balaam, he, he, he was a prophet and God would tell him what to do. And he wouldn't like disobey what God said, but he tried really hard to. He always had one foot in God's camp and one foot in the world. And the Bible condemns that. You need to be all in in your faith. Not an unsteady soul trying to straddle the fence of worldliness and godliness. Trying to be relevant to the world in such a way that you twist and water down the gospel. You need to be fully committed to the doctrines laid out in scripture. And so these false prophets aren't doing that. They're trying to be a minister in the church but to teach worldliness. And God condemns that in the greatest way in the book of Revelation. Uh, And so you need to look at that uh, later on. I can give you verses later. Uh, the final point, as we conclude, sorry that I'm speeding up, but i got to get you out of here. The proverbial conclusion on perseverance. The proverbial conclusion on perseverance is how this ends, 18 through 22. It says in verse 18, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the truth is, Uh, What the true proverb says has happened to them. Here's the proverbial. Uh, The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So this final section here talks about these people who are getting lured away from the faith in droves. Many are being forsaken by the false teaching. Many are embracing this worldly doctrine and leaving the church. We saw that in Peter's day. We see that today. It's always been and it always will be. In fact, in the last day, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that there, before all the Antichrist stuff happens, there will be a great falling away. The Greek word apostasia. There is going to be a great apostasy where people are leaving the faith in droves. 
Okay, that's going to happen and it continues to transpire today. But it's not people who are Christians becoming non-Christians. You need to understand this. That's not what Peter is saying. He's saying the people leaving the faith, they're not losing their salvation. They are leaving the believer's group. But they were never saved to begin with. And the way we see this is he calls them, in verse 14, unsteady souls. That's not how you characterize someone who is, uh, is firmly rooted in the faith. I pray that you are not an unsteady soul this morning, but that you are firmly rooted. Not through naivete, you know, just saying, I'm going to believe that, and I don't care what anybody says, I don't care. You know, I, I want you to know what the Bible teaches. I want you to know what the world teaches. And I want you, if you are born again, to see that God's way is better than their way. That's firmly rooted. Not just blindly believing something because someone told you that. Because you could fall prey to anything at that point. Okay, Be firmly rooted, not an unsteady soul. In verse 18, he refers to those being led astray as those who are barely escaping. They're referring to those who have barely come out of the world. They're just hanging on by a thread in their faith. And the false prophets see those people and they prey on those people. And they lead them down the road of destruction. And then it finally concludes as a dog returns to his vomit and a sow to the mire. Those are not ways that God refers to believers. He does not call his sons and daughters dogs. Nor does he call them pigs. But yet those who have hidden themselves in the church... They are inquiring, they know the answers, but yet they've never fully committed. That's who he's referring to. The book of Revelation says outside the new Jerusalem will be dogs, not inside. Okay, those sent away for eternal punishment will be dogs, not saints. If you are firmly rooted in your faith this morning, then praise God, God will preserve your faith. He is the author and finisher of the faith. He's not going to let anything happen in there if it is a true, genuine faith. But those who have not been born again, they have not been regenerate, they fall prey to the schemes of the devil and his false prophets. So, in summary, cling to your faith. The world is full of half-truths, half partial truths, and straight-out lies. Lean heavily on the word of God and on its plain meaning. Two, part company with those who authoritatively espouse false doctrine and lies concerning Christ's identity. Don't listen to Paula White. Don't listen to Ken Copeland. Don't listen to these podcasts by these people who are telling you lies. Don't even entertain the thoughts that they give. Three, let theology feed your ideologies, not the other way around. Scripture is supreme. God's word reigns true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let it feed all other things in your life. And may they be subject to the word of God. And finally, remember that there is a judgment day coming and God will deal harshly with those who corrupt his perceived image and who lead people astray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And Lord, we thank you for our time together studying. I pray, Lord, that this morning we would know the truth and that we would find it in you. And through your word, and I pray, Lord, that we continue to be people firmly planted and rooted in you. Forgive us of our sin. Lord, may we go forward this week and apply these principles 
And Lord, we pray that it all be done for your glory. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and have a time of invitation and singing praise to the Lord before we dismiss.